This is Contra Radio from Contra.Scot. We plough and sow, we are so low that we delve in the dirty clay Till we bless the plain with a golden grain and the veil with a fragrant hay Our place we know, we are so low down at the landlord's feet Oh, we're not too low, the bread to grow, too low, the bread to eat. Welcome back to everyone who is listening in to this, our latest episode of A People's History of Scotland. So you're here with me again, Sarah Bennett, and I'm back in conversation with author Chris Banbury. And this week, I'm really pleased that we are joined by Emeritus Professor Chris Watley of Dundee University a well-published author himself of several publications on the history of Scotland, particularly this period, I believe. And in 2016, his book, Immortal Memory, Burns and the Scottish People, was published. So welcome both to this episode. Good to have you here. Let's just recap before we get into the discussion today, where we left off. We left off the last episode with the decline of the Covenanter movement that we discussed in some detail. Today, we're at the beginning of the 18th century, and we'll be talking about the Active Union of 1707 and the Jacobite Risings as well. But what I'd like to do is just rewind a decade or so before 1707 and look at some important events that took place. So the decade before the the Active Union, Scotland had experienced two traumatic events. Firstly, the famine years from 1695, which resulted, I believe you mentioned this, Chris Banbury, in your book, in a dramatic loss of life, estimated between 5 and 15% of the population. And secondly, again in 1695, there was Scotland's attempt at establishing its own empire with a colony in Panama, which had been authorised by the Scottish Parliament under what we know as the Darien Scheme. How important were these events to each other, if you like, And in what way did they lead into the Act of Union itself? Chris Watley, would you like to start on that one? These are hugely important events in Scotland's history, not least because of the illness and the deaths that occurred as a result of the famine, which lasted a long time, and which is an indication, actually. Not all historians agree with this, but my my view is that Scotland in the 1690s was descending into a difficult situation economically. And if you have such a, a high rate of population death, you're really talking about an underdeveloped country. You know, the savage effects of the famine are indicative of a country which was struggling financially and economically. And so where Darien comes in is, is interesting because just at the time when Scots were recognising or realising there was a problem here and all sorts of people were, were worried about or, or thinking about Scotland, thinking about how to improve things, along comes the company for Scotland and its scheme to establish a colony overseas. This is the sort of thing that's going on throughout many of the European countries are doing this. And it's the way to riches, basically. You know, you're able to import raw materials, perhaps even gold and silver. You know, it's, it's a route towards wealth. There was enormous support for Darien, hugely popular support, because it was a way out. It looked, it's a bit like a lottery, you know, the, the national lottery. Mm-hmm. It was a way to set, settle things quickly. But of course, it was a disaster for a variety of reasons. It, it was probably set up in the wrong part of the world, part of the Spanish Empire. The Spaniards weren't, weren't going to let the Scots settle there. Anyway, it was a pretty difficult part of the world climatically. And it's interesting that while the Scots tried to settle there, nobody else has tried to settle there since, yeah. since the 1690s. And it failed. And that, if you like, brought the issue of 
wither Scotland very much to the fore. Do the Scots try on their own to compete with these other great European powers that are setting up overseas empires, or does Scotland need to engage with England? Because England is a much more powerful country, bigger population, much richer economically, and critically has a navy to protect its merchant ships on the high seas. Chris Banbury, do you want to add anything to that? I concur with that, Chris, and almost all of that. But I think one of the things that comes out with the Hungary years is that some people say it wasn't so bad. Other historians have tried to say, well, it wasn't just Scotland, it happened in Scandinavia, much of Northern Europe. The point was that that famine did not happen in two countries in Europe, in England and in Holland. And it didn't happen in England and Holland, I would argue, because they were already capitalist countries. And I think what Chris says about the Darien scheme, very important, we have to add into the mix, which gives the whole question of where the Scotland stands now in this supposedly united kingdom, is that King William IV, for reasons of his own, was not prepared to do anything to help the Scots in settling in Darien. I was not prepared to go up against the Spanish because his interest was fighting a war to preserve Dutch independence from France. And Spain, as a rival to France at this time, was a potential ally and certainly not someone they wanted to keep on side. As Chris says, a, a debate is opening up about which way forward for Scotland. And this is a debate largely among the elites. But it spills over because it touches into issues which affect a majority of the population, for instance, the position of the Church of Scotland, the Kirk, inside any potential use. This debate is beginning to open up. And I think what's interesting, I'll be rereading some of the debates in the Scottish Parliament, which I have to say, when the current Scottish Parliament was opened in 1998, Winnie Ewing said the Scottish Parliament it is now hereby reconvened. No, there's a lot wrong with the current Scottish Parliament. We should understand it's the Scottish Parliament in 1706, 1707. There was no iota of democracy involved. It was made up of nobles and patrician representatives of the royal boroughs. And the electorate was absolutely tiny. This was not a democratic body. But I think the debates are quite interesting because clearly when you read the contributions, there's some quite high-level contributions. And it is a debate about which way Scotland got to go. How can we develop the economy? So I think it's worth trying to, if you ever get a chance, dig into some of those debates because they're a slightly higher level than I expected. Well, let's get on to the Act of Union then, because that's obviously the direction that, that was taken. The poet Robert Burns said that the Union bought and sold for English gold. And we do know that some money was given to Scottish MPs, but actually wasn't that much, I don't think. And Chris Watley, your research showed that a number of Scottish parliamentarians genuinely wanted union because it offered free trade with England and her colonies. Can you talk a bit more about that? This is a, a hugely controversial subject because, well, in the 19th century, in the early part of the 20th century, historians were inclined to see the union as a good thing, an act of statesmanship. In the 1960s, 70s, 80s, we then had a backlash, if you like, where, if you like, inverted commas, nationalist historians were inclined to take the view that the Scots were bought and sold for English gold corruption, this was a political job, and, and so on and so forth. Nothing to do with principle, but uh, everything to do with private gain, if you like. And then in the uh, 300th anniversary of the Union, people like myself, there was a number of books came out, but I wrote a, a, a kind of hefty book called The Scots and the Union. And I know people describe me as a unionist historian. I'm actually not. I'm a historian of the Union. And when I set out to write that book, I, I did it genuinely as a voyage of discovery to track back 
to see where this union came from. We, I had a research assistant called Derek Patrick, we discovered that at the time of the revolution, the glorious revolution, which I think you must have dealt with in your last program, one of the outcomes of that was a demand for union, actually. And it wasn't the first time Scots had demanded or sought union with England. There had been attempts to forge a union of trade at various times during the 17th century. But anyway, what we discovered that there were individuals in the Scottish Parliament who were demanding union in 1689, 1690, and those, some of those same characters lived to take part in the 1706-1707 union uh, debate, if you like, and were consistent in their view that a union was necessary for Scotland's good. Now, it wasn't just about trade, um, although that was a factor. In fact, in the Scottish Parliament, even members of the Parliament who were against the union on various grounds supported the fourth article of union, which was that which we created a, a free trade area, if you like, and, and uh, allowed the Scots to access the English colonies. I argued that there is a, a, a level of consistency among some of the Scottish politicians and, and particularly among the Whigs, and that is men who supported the revolution, and, and another very critical body that we might talk about in the Scottish Parliament called the Squadroni Volante. So there is some support in the Scottish Parliament for union. In fact, very, very recently, and no one's published this yet, but a guy called Daniel Fetchy and I, who's a Jacobite historian, are writing an article currently about some information that was produced by Jacobite spies uh, who were interested in what was going on in Scotland in 1705. And we found there, these documents reveal that the political allegiance of Scots um, as regards the Hanoverian succession, as regards the Union, were what were known or identifiable in 1705, before you get into the era of just alleged a whole lot of bribery and so forth took place. Now, there's no doubt that politicians then and now are interested in themselves, um, to some degree, to a greater or lesser degree. That doesn't mean to say that at the same time they, they didn't have ideologies, they didn't have principles, that they didn't have bigger visions, if you like, one way or other. Um, but having said that, um, there is an allegation that's often made is that £20,000 was sent north of the border to bribe Scottish politicians. Uh, this is the famous £20,000 which appears in the uh, book by George Lockett-Carnwass, who was a well-known Jacobite at the time. But when you look at that £20,000 and how it was distributed, most went to politicians who were owed money for their services to the state. So it's, it's the payment of back salary. It's not unreasonable to ask for, you, for your salary that you've been owing to be paid. Some of the people on the list, those who have recipients, actually didn't have a vote. So this is not about bribing them. This is about you know paying a messenger who did this, that, and the next thing. And actually, when it comes to the bit, it's, it's less than a handful of individuals who may have changed their mind because, you know, uh, receiving something from, from, from this largesse, if you like. But there are, you know, politicians were looking for place, they were looking for promotion. But what my argument would be that within the Scottish Parliament, which I agree is not a democratic body, um, but there were within the Scottish Parliament those who took the view, although nobody was hugely enthusiastic about it, who took the view that the union was the best way forward for Scotland. And let me make this this other point, because um, I know Chris has talked about the undemocratic nature of the parliament. That's absolutely true in terms of the electorate. However, the Scottish parliament was inundated with petitions from 
people outside, if you like, or relatively ordinary people. And there were, of course, riots and so forth on the streets. And some of these petitions, protests against aspects of the union articles were listened to and the articles were adjusted accordingly. Thanks, Chris. We talked about, obviously, those in support of the union, but as you've also mentioned, popular opposition to the union too and the protests that you mentioned there in Edinburgh in 1706. Chris Banbury, you describe it as non-stop protests and riots for several months. What was it that was causing those protests in particular? What were the main fears? One of the biggest fears, which eventually the uh, English side gave into, was of the question of the Church of Scotland. The Church of Scotland did give some form of say to its members. I think there was also worried about foodstuffs going up in price. There was worry about it. I mean, for instance, some people were smuggling, but I think the religious question was the biggest one factor in here. And I think what Chris is right in saying is that there was this huge upsurge of debate from both sides, and not all the boroughs, for instance, were, did, did not agree. Some were for union, some were against it. And the Edinburgh mob acted, you know, in a way as a, a, as a, a way of bringing popular opinion onto the streets, trying deliberately to pressurise the parliament to vote against union. The real failing for the the, the no side, the country party, was his leadership was not really, it didn't really have its heart in it. The Duke of Hamilton was the formal leader. At crucial times, he suddenly got a toothache and say he could make it for a vote. Underlying that was a split within what Chris has talked about, the, uh, the country party. There was a, a, a Jacobite wing of it who would have uh, voted against Union, not actually because they were against Union, but particularly as a way they hoped to restore the Stuarts. That was their priority. The country party, the majority, were committed to a Protestant succession. And when push came to shove, essentially that was going to influence the way they went. So once the Church of the issue of the Church of Scotland was clear, and something else happened as well, by the way, that the English also agreed that the hereditary courts and the feudal privileges of the Scottish aristocracy would be maintained. So you have this anonymous situation for between 1707 and 1746. We're going to come back to this. Scotland and Malibu remains a feudal society. England is a capitalist society. That's not going to be tenable. You know, we have to be aware that what Scotland was getting was access to what would become the biggest free trade zone in the world. Uh, I mean, it sounds strange. We talk about sort of free trade zones and agreements, the European Union, things like that. No, but a united British economy with its colonies was in a very, very strong position globally, as we'll discover when it comes to the, the, the contest with uh, France. I just, I want to say one last thing about bribery. Uh, I agree with Chris, Chris on this. I mean, patronage, let's call it politely. Patronage was an established fact of 18th century political life. And, you know, Ward Iowa, the, the brother of the Duke of Argyle, who, who led basically the campaign for uh, for Union, only returned to Scotland when he got uh, the promotion in the British Army, which he asked for. This was normal. He didn't vote for it anyway, but he, he wanted, that was his price, and he got it. And what's interesting about that is the one institution I would argue, which was a British institution by then, was the British Army, in which, Scot in which Scots, like Iowa, were playing a part in a very successful series of campaigns, one of the, the best periods of the British Army after the Duke of Marlborough and the war against uh, France. And I think their role of that elite officer corps is quite important in pushing for union. They saw the advantages of it as well, not just simply in trade, but Scotland being able to stand up to itself, which it hadn't been able to do. I think, Chris, correct me, I think it had two naval vessels at the time of the Darien scheme. I, I think this makes, makes a lot of sense. I think it's worth 
saying, I think both of us have got close to it. And if I go back to my characters who were around at the time of the revolution, they were still alive voting for supporting union in 1776, if not then, their sons. And they saw union as a way of securing Protestantism in Britain, actually. And we must remember that the time there was this visceral uh, hatred of Roman Catholicism. And it, it's a big issue for the British state because we should remember too that at the time, France is Catholic, of course, but also you have on the French throne, Louis XIV, who aspires to basically universal monarchy. So you have a very aggressive Catholic France and countries or societies like, like England, or countries like England and Scotland, who are Protestant one way or another and are opposed to that religion. Remember that in both Scotland and England, there has been support for the revolution and something called constitutional monarchy, as opposed to absolutism, which was how, how, how it had been, if you like. And that's what did part of the revolution had been about. And there was on the part of many Scots who supported the union, I had a conviction that they should never turn to those days before the revolution. I think that's absolutely correct. And I think we should put a little caveat on it. When we talk about this, the idea of Catholicism and this threat, we're not talking about what happened in the 19th century with the rise of sectarians in Scotland. Yeah. It's a very different concept. Yeah. You know, the victory of essentially those wars fought with Bourbon France, a victory for Bourbon France, and this comes on as an issue about Jacobinism, we'll talk about in a minute. If they had actually succeeded in defeating England, it would have meant probably turning the clock back, not just politically, but economically. Yeah. And reimposing a feudal order. We talked about the fact when I said it, this was the biggest free trade zone in, in the world, the new United Kingdom. You know, you look at France, it's still divided with internal tariff barriers. You know, if you want to travel from Paris to Marseille, you have to pay the different landlords and areas you're going through to use that bit of the road. In the 17th and 18th, we've discussed this before, but this was a religious and a political fight. And I reluctant to say, you know, on the side of progress. But it's certainly the case that forces associated in Protestant Europe at the time, in England and in, in Holland, had made a breakthrough, as I said earlier, which no other country has done. And if, you know, France has succeeded in overturning this and they've done what happened elsewhere in the Czech lands much earlier, that have destroyed that economic progress. So just, just clarify it for me and our listeners then, because we've talked about the benefits for Scotland, but we know, um, as we've touched on, that there was a crisis south of the border, obviously the Protestant Queen Anne, she hadn't secured an heir to the throne and the determination among the weak ruling class that you you mentioned, Chris Watley, um, was that George, the Elector of Hanover, should therefore take the throne. So given that crisis, what's in it for England, this act of union, if they are taking on, if you like, a less developed, more backward country north of the border? The truth is, England wasn't... We should really not talk about Scotland and England. There are, there are political groupings and, and, and aspirations within both of those countries. But if, you, if we want to generalise about England, they didn't, weren't really all that interested in union. They had turned down Scotland's demands for, or requests, sorry, for negotiations over the union of trade way back when, when the, the union of the crowns, James the, the, the sixth and first, had been keen to have a closer union between England and Scotland's. And there had been, of course, a kind of um, a Britain, a United Britain during under Cromwell's uh, um, regime, if you like. And there were requests for a union of trade um, thereafter, too. The English, the English generally, I don't like to generalise this way, saw the Scots as poor, 
likely to be wanting handouts and miserable too because of that Presbyterianism. That's a bit of a caricature, but there are there are documents and, and, and you know evidences of of that attitude being being current. So England um, only becomes interested in the union in seventeen five really. Um, when the Scots refused to um, agree to their act of succession, which would have, as, as you've just said, put a, a Protestant from the House of Hanover on the British throne to succeed Anne, who was not childless, but, but none of her children survived. And so it, because Scotland had not acceded to that, and because of the war with France going on at the same time, there was a concern that the Scots were, were being a little awkward, uh, to say the least, there was even greater concern that the Scots would perhaps ally with France and support a return of one of the male Stuarts who had been deposed, if you like, at the time of the revolution. And the way of dealing with that was to forge this incorporating union because the Scots, as I say, had been awkward during the 1703, 1704, So they, in a sense, lost patience. But there's also, and this gets too complicated for this, but there's also political manoeuvring jockeying going on south of the border. Uh, the Whigs and the Tories disagree on, on, on the Scottish issue, if you like. But ultimately, English ministers uh, get fed up and say, right, we're going for an incorporating union. We're not having the Scottish Parliament. They caused too many problems. And happily for them, there were Scots who were happy to go along with the union that we've been talking about. The key issue was that potentially Scotland was a backdoor for French invasion. And Scots played this quite well. They played it well in terms of, as Chris said, about uh, using the English concerns of the Protestant succession. Although I think it push had come to shove the, Scot the majority of Scots uh, commissioners would have capitulated to ensure that happens. And they also issued the issue of war. That, uh, because William and Force had taken Scotland to war without the Scottish Parliament's approval, they passed a, a resolution saying that this should not happen. So they played it well. But I think Chris is right. I mean, really, this English had very little interest in Scotland, had little knowledge of Scotland, and what knowledge they did had not really encouraged them. But I think there's a difference here I want to make is, that, is of course, there was two potential backdoors for France and, and reaction. One was Scotland and one was Ireland. And in 1688, there had been popular resistance to the Glorious Revolution in both countries, less so in Scotland, more so in Ireland, obviously. Because Scotland is an overwhelmingly Presbyterian country, Protestant country, it's treated differently. It's acceptable in a way that Ireland's not. Ireland is a Catholic country. It eventually has to be ruled as a colony. And even when 1802, we're jumping on a bit, when an act of union is passed, it's still a colony with a, a governor, a viceroy, you know, a British army garrison, all these things. That didn't exist in Scotland uh, in really any sense. I mean, there is at the end of the day, the Scots are acceptable because they are Protestants. And over time, that element of Protestantism and the military crucibles of war and of empire will create a British identity which Scots, by and large, can feel quite comfortable on. That's jumping in a hell of a pace, but uh, that's really post-1750. Uh, but the Scots were acceptable because they were Protestants. Okay, that's that's really interesting. You mentioned Chris Banbury earlier in the Scottish Parliament that there was a split between the commissioners, that you had those supporting union and those that opposed it were divided between a smaller Jacobite group and then a larger one which was opposed to the incorporation into the British state but was open to accepting that there must be a Protestant succession when Queen Anne died without leaving an heir. How did that 
end up playing out then? Um, the, the, the Jacobites, um, it's worth saying, the last thing the Jacobites wanted, they are the most fervent of, of opponents of, of union, apart from people like Fletcher or Saltoon, uh, who's a kind of Republican. The last thing the Jacobites wanted was this union, because in effect, it, it ruled them out of ever succeeding to the British throne or the British crowns, if you like. They opposed it bitterly. They don't accept the result, if you like. They, don't, they, they, they want to break the union almost within months, actually, or weeks even, of it being forged. One thing we haven't talked about, though, in, which, which is maybe worth mentioning, we talk about a three-way split in the Scottish Parliament. So there is this critical group I mentioned earlier on, Squadroni Volante, who are a group of about 25 men. And they had not always been union supporters. Um, some of them had been, none of them had been. They'd been very much in support of the Darien scheme. Not only was there great enthusiasm for the Darien project, but it, it sucked up enormous amounts of capital in Scotland. And that, of course, had been lost. The point is that England accepted that they should recompense the Scots um, for their losses. And that was hugely important um, because they'd been involved in Darien. They had been very much interested in Scotland's economic fortunes and future and um, because part of that, those monies was to be invested in Scottish industry, various things, if you like, associated with the future. Are you enjoying this episode of A People's History of Scotland? Make sure to hit the subscribe button and leave a review. You can find us at Contour Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud or wherever you listen to podcasts. This way, you'll get every episode as soon as it's released as well as all the other shows on Contra Radio Podcast Network. And head over to Contra.scot, where you can read up-to-date analysis of news, culture, and events in Scotland and across the globe. Let's move then on to 1710, because as far as I believe, do come in and correct me if, if any of this is not correct, um, a change in government in Britain had led to hopes that James VIII might be able to return to Britain to be king after the death of Queen Anne. Then, in 1714, George I comes to the British throne, and just he was not so popular. And it's at this moment Jacobites see an opportunity and plan a revolt, and they promised to repeal the union if King James VIII won the throne. How important an issue was that in the Jacobite Rising of 1715? In both major Jacobite rebellions, they raised the question of the act of, uh, the act of union, the repeal of the act of union. Uh, I think that wasn't just because they had a Scottish national interest at home. I think that's because they wanted to return to the situation pre-Glorious Revolution, where there were two, a union of crowns, but two separate kingdoms. That fitted with a kind of absolutist concept of what a kingdom should be. The problem here is, is a real one. There was popular unrest against the Act of Union, and the Jacobites could at different times tap into that. But the big sticking point was with uh, James VIII, the old uh, pretender of Stone. When any suggestion of him taking Stone was raised, it was always prerequisite of giving up his Catholic faith. He would never accept that. And because of that, the truth be told, there might be this, you know, there's a famous, I suppose, some sort of uh, attempt of rapprochement between the Cameronians, a very, uh, one of the more radical Presbyterian sects, and the Jacobites in Dumfries. The truth is, there's a huge stumbling block here. If you want to uh, support the Jacobites, you want to bring back James VIII, you're bringing back a Catholic monarch. Now, the vast majority of Scots, Lowland Scots, uh, outside the Northeast and parts of the Highlands, had 
supported the overthrow of James VII, James II, because he was trying to build up an excellence as monarchy like that in France, but also because of his Catholicism. And when he had a child, a son, and a Catholic succession is imminent, they brought over William IV from Holland with uh, James's daughter Anne and carried out the glorious revolution. So throughout this, at different points, for a majority of Scots, there was no way they were going to support a return to a Catholic monarchy. There were small numbers of Catholics in the Highlands in the Northeast who would support the Jacobites. The majority of the support actually comes in, this gets complicated from Episcopalians, people who are roughly supporters of what we identify as the Church of England, who had been ousted from the Church of Scotland at the time of the Glorious Revolution because the Scots managed to secure the abolition of bishops once again in the Church of Scotland. These people supported bishops, they supported a level of uh, ritual and idolatry, a prayer book and so on and so forth. So it's areas in the northeast around Aberdeen, that was where popular support for Jacobitism lies. And that's not unimportant because this are the, the, the myth is that the Jacobitism was based in the Highlands. It's not quite true. There was areas of the Highlands where there was support for the Jacobites. Actually, a majority of the clans were supporters of the Hanoverians, particularly in 1745. But one of the big areas of support for Jacobitism was in the Northeast, in the Lowlands, uh, because of that religious issue and because also a number of the, the major landlords there who were, uh, shall we say, Anglican or Episcopalian supported Jacobitism. Chris Watley, do you want to come in at all? Most of that makes a lot of sense. I should admit it's important, I think, to, to understand the Jacobites are, are, are considering their options, if you like, in terms of um, a, a rising of some sort, even before 1707. Certainly there are a, a, a failed uh, rebellion in, in 1708. But the point that I'd want to make is that the impact of the Union, it was favourable for those merchants on the Clyde and Glasgow and Ayrshire because they, they were now able to cross the Atlantic, protected by the Royal Navy. Something similar happens on the east coast of Scotland. But by and large, the Union is, well, A, it doesn't deliver. And B, and you could argue it, 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 it's worse than that, that, it, that the, the, the new taxes, if you like, that are imposed by the union, A, begin to be collected. And the Scots had been pretty marvellous at evading uh, customs officers before the union. But after the union, um, we have a new, more efficient um, system of taxation, customs and excise officers and systems imported from south of the border. And certain commodities begin to be charged in the first place and then secondly charged at higher rates. And the economic benefits don't come. In fact, there's damage done to the linen industry, which is a huge employer for, for Scots. The woolen industry is damaged. And so there's a great deal of popular dissatisfaction on the basis of unemployment, underemployment, and the union is blamed and the Jacobites play that card very, very effectively. And you could argue that, that, that um, much of the support there was for Jacobitism uh, at an everyday level, if you like. And I think I'd probably see things a wee bit differently from Chrissy. I, th I think the evidence suggests that the Jacobites are able to recruit quite widely across Scotland, um, certainly in 1715 and, and indeed in 1745. Um, this, this is kind of demonstrated by, by Murray Pitter, who's written about these kind of things at great length. So the Jacobite charge, if you like, is very much dependent on the failure of the union to deliver. So support, popular support, I think, for the Jacobites is, is greater in 1715 than it is in 1745, partly because by 1745, some of the 
the gains, if you like, of, of the union are be, beginning to be achieved. And that's quite deliberate, actually, on the part of the British state and Walpole, Britain's first prime minister in particular, who recognises from the 1730s, but certainly in the 1740s, that um, an underdeveloped Scotland, a Scotland where you have a large number of underemployed people, where poverty is rife, these are potential recruiting grounds for Jacobite armies. And so, therefore, there is a need, notwithstanding the principles of the union, which is, should be equal taxation, you know, free trade, but also there should be equal taxation across the United Kingdom, then it's recognised that Scotland has to be treated differently. And so one of the great achievements, if I shouldn't use the word great, one of the pretty spectacular achievements of Walpole and, and, and governments in the 1740s is that they decide to support the Scottish linen industry. Now, you might say, you know, I can see some of your listeners or hear them or imagine them bored, yawning, well, linen. But the fact is, linen was an industry which was um, very much a domestic industry, but it employed at one time something like four out of five um, Scots women who worked for some time or other during the day or week or year at spinning. And it was the great benefit of the union in the sense that much of the cloth, linen cloth that uh, was produced in Scotland was going across the Atlantic to the slave plantations in the Caribbean and the southern states of, of North America. So to understand the significance of British government intervention, everybody in the world could make linen. It's relatively easy, but the Scots were able from the 1740s because they got a special payment or a subsidy, if you like, to export the linen, which meant they could compete with Germany, which was the great producer of linen in Europe at the time. And that was spectacularly um, successful. It was very important in terms of suppressing dissent about the union and perhaps even turning people's um, hearts and minds towards not necessarily loving the union, but accepting the fact that there are benefits from what has happened in 1707. So the benefits are later, um, but they are substantial. I think I've gone off your question slightly, but um, there we are. You, can you take... might be preempting pre uh, some of the questions later, but that, that's absolutely fine. But I was really interested um, when I was reading this chapter in your book, Chris Bambury, about these protests um, and the fact that there was this period of unrest, as, as Chris Botley had mentioned, about the high food prices and that a number of the protagonists were women, I believe, in these riots. Um, and we saw this, didn't we, in the last episode, talking about the popular movement of the Covenanters that are drawn in women as well. And now we're seeing women back again. I think you also mentioned in the book that there's some kind of almost like a levellers movement as well that starts to emerge around the same time. Is there anything particularly new about these forms of protest that you think reflect the age? Scotland had no history of peasant rebellion, unlike uh, England or Catalonia. So there's been very little history of popular unrest, popular disturbance until we move into this period. You mentioned at the beginning of the century, a movement against the enclosure in Galway, the parcelling up of common land to create cattle ranches for the export trade to England and a movement there very much associated and off the back of the sort of covenanting tradition, been a strong one with the covenanters of throwing down those walls, throwing down those enclosures. This is a modern movement for the first time. So I think we'd seen in the English Revolution of the 1640s, which hadn't occurred in Scotland for many reasons. And at this point, and Chris has written widely on this, and I quote Chris in the book about this, things like the malt tax riots. These are food riots. And classically, food riots are led by women. You know, that's what started the Russian Revolution in February 1917. 
So I think it is important to say this is the first time, and I say this in my book, you know, in a people's history of Scotland, it's really the first time you hear the voice of the people. And things are going to change and change very rapidly, particularly after 1746, the reasons that we'll go into in a second. Great. Chris Watley, do you want to come in? Any, any, anything to do with the protests? Protest is widespread, and it's it's about food prices, but it's and it's about the invasion of of, of excise and officers of, of the state. So a lot of these food riots that that um, that Chris has talked about, they are designed to disarm, hurt, perhaps even kill. But but that's very very rare. Customs officers. So it's about food prices, but it's also about something else. And I think it's about an opposition to the way in which the state is encroaching on everyday life, which is a relatively new thing. Andy Galloway closed, it's worth saying this, that, that uh, while it is obviously about its opposition to the the building of walls around common land and so forth, but interestingly enough, most of the landlords whose properties are attacked were seen to be supportive of the Jacobites during the 1715. And so there's a political element to it too. And, and that's significant, um, but understandable in the sense that down in the Southwest, Support for Presbyterianism and Hanover, if you like, is is stronger than it is in some other parts of, of the country. So it's popular protest, but with a political edge. Is it this period, really, that we start to see the state in Scotland? Because, Chris Banbury, we've discussed in previous episodes that, you know, there doesn't really have an emerging state in Scotland till much later. Is this where we start to see it, albeit a British state? There was a precursor of this under Cromwell when a united British state did exist and was able to pacify, for instance, quite effectively pacify the Highlands, take control of Ireland, and it began the expansion of the British Empire through the conquest of Jamaica. It also defeated the Dutch in a couple of wars, which is quite important, the main rival. So I think, yes, the British state is coming on. There is a limit to this, though, that there are still what was called the heritable jurisdictions Landlords, aristocrats had their own courts. This is the mainstay of the feudal system. And that was still there. So there wasn't yet in Scotland itself a superstructure, a state created which could help capital accumulation. So I'm using technology terminology here. And I think it required a final move. And, and this is where I don't know what Chris will agree with, but I believe this is what's happened effectively in the week of 1746. We haven't discussed the rising yet. But you see the British state take a decision they had done in 1715. 1715, the Jacobite rebellion was defeated through the indecision of the Jacobites, through the lack of any popular support in England, but also because the forces that put it down were essentially internal Scottish forces. Duke of Argyll, et cetera, didn't want at this stage in 1715, 1716 to end the of jurisdictions. 1746, after Culloden, I think it was almost impossible for the Jacobites to win. They had come close to London at a time when Britain's a permanent war with France. The British state takes the decision that all this is going to end now. The heritable jurisdictions are going to be abolished, that no more can uh, landowners raise their tenantry as a military force. Scotland was still, that's one of the reasons why Jacobitism was relatively effective. It could have a militarized area in Scotland, which it didn't have in England. There's a big debate uh, among economic historians, but I would argue that Scotland then goes through this very rapid transformation. Scotland's entry into the capitalist world is different from that of England. England is a much more gradual process, which sees a whole series of different events with the emergence of the agrarian revolution and finally industrial revolution. 
Scotland is more dramatic. And I think that will have implications for Scottish society. But before we discuss or disagree over that, I think we do have to go over a little bit over the Jacobite Risings, particularly 1740. Yeah. So, I mean, in 1745, we've got Charles Edward Stuart, Bonnie Prince Charlie, once again attempting to restore the Stuart line. And as you said, he was able to win a degree of support in the Western Highlands and the Northeast, but actually had very few troops. But despite this support that he did have, Holding down Scotland wasn't enough. He wanted to take England and therefore decides to march southwards. And as you've mentioned, Chris Banbury, he did gain some support in Manchester. But from what you wrote in your book, I believe, didn't really make any attempt to garner that support around him before this. And whilst he might have had support, picking up arms and fighting for that cause is, is a different matter. He loses the support from his council and Charles is forced into retreat. And we get to the famous last stand of the Jacobite army at Culloden in April 1746. And I think what you've been touching on is that this is the moment where the British state is determined really to destroy the power of the nobles and the clan chiefs to destroy the remnants of feudalism. Chris Watley, you might like to come back in on that. Do you agree with that or disagree with that? Just to go back to, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be happy if, if we left this podcast without saying that we shouldn't underestimate the extent to which uh, there was Scottish government which was not ineffective, you know, in the 17th um, century prior to the Union. It's it's a di- it's a different order of things though after after the Union. But 1740s, it's it's nasty. What happens in the wake of Culloden? Hugely, you know, some people described what happened thereafter as genocide. But having said that, there was much relief uh, amongst, if you like, ordinary Scots who were involved in business as merchants and weavers and so on and so forth, um, who just wanted to get on with their lives and saw 1745-46 as, as an interruption in terms of their everyday lives and a wish to make a living. And so you do find in the churches, the Church of Scotland, one of, one of the interesting things about 1545 is the extent to which the Church of Scotland comes out on, on, on the part of the Hanoverian state, if you like. Um, some of the ministers, are not only, they're not only preaching from their pulpits, but some of them are actually even paying for arms, if not arming themselves, um, and getting out there. And certainly in the aftermath of Culloden, there are services of thanksgiving across the nation on the part of, of Presbyterian ministers. And, and some of them are very interesting in the sense that they point out what might have been lost that had the rising been successful, whether or not that was, you know, their claims are, are true or not is, is something else. And we can never know because um, we're not into counterfactual history, but we're trying to talk about what did happen. But what there's no doubt whatsoever that after 1746, Scotland is militarized, actually. The, the army is everywhere. And in fact, when I was writing my book on Scottish society that I mentioned before we started talking, I made the case that the point that there was no serious disturbance in Scotland during the 18th century, really, without the intervention of the, the magistrates calling on the army to intervene. Um, and those, these, these were regiments of the British army who were there to ensure, to tame, if you like, um, the Scots and to ensure that never again is there um, anything like the 1745 uh, rising. I think one of the things we've seen recently is that in the, the pro-independence movement, if I may call it that, it's a kind of full Jacobitism uh, re-emerging. I think we need to be very clear about the fact that the majority, the overwhelming majority of Scots did not support the Jacobite rebellion. 
in Perth, there was an uprising against the Jacobites, actually. Uh, luckily, some uh, Jacobite forces were coming down the road to reinforce Charles. That had to be suppressed. Stirling resisted. Glasgow, as we know, celebrated King George II's birthday while the Jacobite army was in the city. There was no popular support south of the Tay in any significant sense for that rising. And I was kind of brought up, and I'm sure Chris was brought up, a kind of uh, you know, idea that Culloden was about between England and Scotland. And I remember, I think it was in 1964, Peter Watkins' documentary Culloden was broadcast on the BBC One. They come interviewing some of the clansmen in the Jacobite army. They say, what brought you here? One of them just turned around and said, I hadn't come. My chief would have burnt down my uh, croft. You know, this was military, feudal military service. This is your rent boy. You don't come with me now. You're dead. Or I'm going to burn down your uh, farm. I'm going to rape your wife. It's as crude as that. And that's why a significant section were there. And I think the real problem was for, uh, for Charles Edward Stewart was that he was never going to be content with holding Scotland. That was untenable as well. English power would have been used to shut that back door again. There was no support in 1745-46 at any effective scale for Jacobitism in England. Firstly, the what Jacobites to landlords there were didn't have a militarized tenantry to raise. And the other problem was that really Charles was also dependent on French support. And as always, French interests in Scotland followed the need of France. And France was, I would say, lukewarm about what was happening in Scotland. It wasn't the priority for France. He sent some support, but really for the Jacobites to win, they would require the French invasion, and that wasn't on the cards. The Royal Navy could generally prevent that ha uh, happening as well. So I think at the end of the day, and Chris is quite right to say what happens at Culloden itself, you know, the British Army supposedly loses control. The British Army never loses control. You know, there was a massacre of the retreating Jacobite army. Uh, it was as much British Army out of control as the Ambritza massacre was a bloody Sunday in 1972. It was sanctioned at the highest level. And while a majority of the military units in the British Army at Culloden were English or the German mercenaries, a minority were Scottish. Actually, it was the Scottish regiments who played the role in the suppression which followed. This is a difference for me between England and Scotland. England has this long, gradual uh, revolutionary change. In Scotland, this is much more what happened in Germany in 1870, or the Meiji Restoration in uh, Japan. This is, if you like, the British state destroying feudalism from the top. It has support on the ground, but it's doing it from the top. And it's never going to return. You know, and so this is a monumental change in 1746. I don't really want to underestimate. This to me is the, the crucial moment in many ways of Scottish history. That's very true. And one, one of the things that intrigues me as a historian is the way in which in the last 30 or 40 years, Jacobite studies, many carried out by good friends of mine, have blossomed. <laughs> and we're now, we're now, we have a view, a vision of uh, a popularly supported Jacobite movements from the from the 17th century onward, and yet they say that history is win, is written by the winners. Well, in this case, the losers have written or re, are rewriting Scotland's history, and it's great stuff. However, my uh, my view is that we need now uh, a, a really good account of Hanoverian Scotland and the explanations, which go beyond just military, the army, if you like. We need explanations for why why the Hanoverian 
regime ultimately becomes the uncontested norm in Scotland in the 18th century. Um, but that's maybe for another day. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A People's History of Scotland. This series is only possible because of support from listeners like you. If you'd like to help us make more shows like this, please head over to contour.scot and make a donation or subscribe to our Patreon channel. The music is by Ewan McLennan from the album Stories Still Untold. Special thanks to him for allowing us to use this song. Willow, willow, as to war we go To fight some foreign country That yesterday was our greatest friend Today's our enemy God bless our boys, the papers scream Praise them, the churchmen cry But oh, when the war is done and we're all home Who cares if we live or die? Willow, willow, till that happy day We're called to a heaven on high Oh, and the freedom we never had in our lives Will be there on the day we die But if you see no earth suffering hell on earth For the promise of a heaven above Oh, I not join the fight Till that one day we might See a heaven down here below See a heaven down here Hello.